Okay, so let's start off with um, what could we start off with? Let's start off with a reading. So I'm going to start off with a short reading of one of my own works. Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. If you haven't seen it, you definitely should go check it out. It's a super, super good movie. Oh my God, I'm a horrible movie reviewer. I didn't get the... <laughs> Hold up, it's probably in my notes somewhere. Can y'all tell that this is my first time? Um, I took notes. Did I not write down who the director of it was? Oh, Lord. Well, I guess y'all gonna have to go find it out yourself. But there's definitely only one Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. So when you go find it, you know, you'll be able to find the directors and all the actors' names and everything. But it was a really good movie. I had seen it before, and I really liked it. And then I watched it again um, with the context of, like, knowing kind of more of it. And I was able to catch more things and see more things than the first time. It is a Southern Gothic film, which I love. I love me a Southern Gothic film. Southern Gothic movies, I'm not going to pretend like I am, like, the holder of the definition of it. Like, I'm not a, I'm not, like, a degreed film analytic or anything. But I do know that, like, certain characteristics of Southern Gothics is they're not even necessarily always, like, a Southern Gothic film is not necessarily even always in the South, I don't think. It's more so, like, the film style and the way that they navigate storytelling and like there's always kind of like a level of like mystery it might even usually be like a murder that's involved and there's gonna be like the presence of metaphysical spiritual things that are woven into the film that are appearing in a way of like like let's say for instance a ghost like most of the most of the occurrence of the movie like nobody's really sitting around like oh my god it's a ghost it's more so like yeah this ghost is doing this thing and we're all kind of on the same page about that some examples of southern gothic films are eve's bayou um i believe daughters of the dust might be a southern gothic too um there are other movies that i know oh like um divine secrets of the yaya sisterhood with sandra bullock I know that's a Southern Gothic. I think it's a Southern Gothic. Um, I don't think... So this one, I don't I don't know if it's a... I think it fit in a category. It's called Practical Magic. Is another Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock, I feel like she didn't been in a few of their movies that kind of fall into that spectrum. Winona Ryder uh, played in this movie called How to Make an American Quilt that I really love. It's like a genre of movies. Like, they really was popping off in, like, the 90s when, like... You were shifting from the mid nineties, like you were shifting from the early nineties to like the late nineties, and something about the camera quality just changed in the late nineties, and the audio quality changed, and it was like, I feel like film styles, at least for dramas, I feel like they like matured a little bit more. Um, I think I, whenever I look at movies from like before the twenty tens, like I feel like action movies are always kind of like a little cringy because they might be like too phony I don't know but like drama movies drama movies from like the 70s to the um late 90s like it was in a bag like dramas was in a bag and so Midnight in the Garden of Evil is Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil is really interesting to me because it's like it flows really well but it's like it has a, a layer of like humor to it and it's like a lot of it's layered with innuendos that maybe if you were to watch it 
and you didn't really understand the wit of it, you might think like, oh, it's boring or like they're wasting time on like too much dialogue or too many of these like random, these random kind of cinematographic moments, cinemagraphic moments, but I find that it's so layered with like little clues. Watching Midnight in a Garden of Good and Evil, like it truly is, it's a mystery for one. It is a mystery. It's a murder mystery. And when you watch it, you see so many little Easter eggs that are at once overt, but then there's like layers to it that are like, hmm, I think that this might have to do with this based off the context of like this being connected to this. So anyway, um, I made a list of talking points. So let's get into it. Um, there is a character, his name is Luther Driggers. He's like one of the first characters we meet and it's this little white man and he got flies, like flies be flying around him and it's very strange. Um, cause I thought it was like bees at first. I think it was like maybe both, like bees and flies, like he tie them on strings and like tie them to his clothes. And when you see him, like the main character is like looking at him like, who is this crazy man? with these flies and um they speak to his character and say like they addressed it like oh yeah he's he's a man who just be doing that you know he's a genius they just say it real casual like yeah he's a genius and that's like one of the first little things that's like layered into the scenes of the work of like they call him a genius, but they also show that he's, like, a little odd, a little peculiar. And that's probably the case for a lot of people who are geniuses. That, like, how many how many geniuses you know are, like, not oddballs? Or how many geniuses you know, like, walking around doing things that people are looking at them and, like, oh, yeah, we totally accept that. That's normal. That's normal for our society, like. Which is funny because like, I feel like it just flips that. It flipped the script. It kind of flipped the script a lot. Like the movie flipped the script a lot. To where like. It's like. It's presenting this character that could potentially be like really judged. For a physical appearance. But then wrapping it around and be like oh yeah. But like that dude right there is a genius. And so like it est- it's establishing from like the very start of the movie that thing I think that's a central thing throughout the course of it is like kind of not judging things by their cover or understanding that everything is probably more than what you can see but it's not to say that what you see is nothing either the second thing that I acknowledged was that there is the presence of African spirituality in the movie And even though I don't believe that the book was written by a black person, the book that the movie is based off of, I don't believe it was written by a black person. But, and not to even say that African spirituality is, like, super thoroughly represented. Like, it's a a few little things that's like, oh, Lord. Like, that don't match what y'all saying that match to. But there is a layer of, I feel like, among the characters in the universe that is this film, there is a layer of, like, the African spirituality is respected. Maybe not by like the whole town, but in the sense of like the writers of the film and the way that it's shown. It's like some parts are a little silly, but I wouldn't say that it's being portrayed as like a caricature. It's not being portrayed as something that is less than. It's being portrayed as something that really holds a weight in the film, which is interesting because the film is dominantly white casted. Um, it's dominantly white casted, but the characters who are brown and black, they hold a lot of weight. So I acknowledge that in respect to the root work. So like, there's like a, it's like root work that's appearing in the courtroom. Root work being a term aligned with like hoodoo, voodoo, things like that. Um, there's like the main, one of the characters, he's like, He's um, in court for something. I'm not gonna see certain things. I'm not gonna say because I don't want to give a movie away. 
he's in the courtroom for something and he has like I think it's like a rabbit foot or something or like a little thing and they show the root worker who's in the courtroom they show her in there sitting behind him there's a lot of things that the film does and like this is one of the things I love about these types of movies is that they say so much without verbally saying it and I think that that's something I want to master in my life period is like being able to speak without speaking being able to allude to things being able to say things in a way that's like yeah like think about it think about it think about it um third note third bullet point is that a cool thing about this movie is that most of the characters in the movie are queer it's very interesting because this is a movie that came out in the 90s so it's not like now where queerness and stuff is kind of trendy now you know um it's a lot of things are more accepted because they're just more mainstream now but this is in the 90s when these things were not so necessarily accepted and they had things in this film that i think that some modern movies could maybe like take some hints on how to represent certain energies and some of the most powerful characters in the movie are queer some of the ones that the ones that are like really pushing the plot are queer characters which is also interesting in respect to there being like the weaving of African spirituality and things. So the movie, by the way, the movie takes place in Savannah, Georgia. So this is the South. This is the South. Um, and so even more, there's that layer of like, hmm, Southern Gothic movie. This isn't where we're expecting to come and find a movie about a bunch of gay people and trans people and whatever. The third point I have is that there's this scene where the characters go to a black cotillion and like a cotillion being essentially like debutante ball type of thing. And they, but they go to the black one. And like I said, the presence of black people in this movie is like, it's very interesting because it's muted in a way like it's not overtly dominant, but when it shows up, I feel like it shows up in a way that feels things kind of hit home in the sense of like, hmm, this little, this little sentence, I got a lot from it. So like one sentence that said is by like the father of one of the deputies and he got like his suit on and he's sitting with his wife and they're like super bougie and pristine class and manners and all that and he's like I do believe we've almost caught the white cotillion basically it's him saying like I think that this year our stuff matches and rivals the white cotillion and I think that is so reflective of an energy that exists in the south to certain degrees certainly probably back in the 90s of Black excellence sometimes meaning white proximity or black excellence sometimes meaning white, like meaning the standards of whiteness or meaning the accolades of whiteness, like achieving the sameness as white counterparts and finding work in that space. I found that to be very interesting. Our third point is that there's a character whose name is Lady Chablis. And Lady Chablis is really interesting because the book was written in inspiration of Lady Chablis, who is a real person. And the real person who is Lady Chablis plays herself as a character based on herself in the movie. And she is a black trans woman. Very interesting. Like very 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 good find like period uh, and there's this scene that's just I love the sequence of this part of the film where Lady Chablis is approached 
by the main character who is essentially like almost like a journalist he's like writing a book and he's wanting to solve this murder mystery and get in the thing for be trying to make his coins and keep in mind there's kind of like this air of queerness in the film that is very like innuendoed and there's a lot that is shown in ways that's like in the 90s you know like it probably wouldn't have really flown to like make a movie and like had this white man kissing this black trans woman or having a relation with this black trans woman but I can imagine that the writers might have still wanted to dive into a layer of the sensuality and so they depict sensuality in a way that really makes at least it made me as an audience member really have to use my brain to process the sensuality in a way that's like it's not overt it's not obvious it's not giving dopamine rush and like super heated and super sexual like almost kind of like how some of our films and movies and shows can be kind it's kind of like soft porn it can be kind of like soft porn um especially like on netflix and things now that we have streaming services and like things aren't so restricted by cable regulations and everything there's a lot that you can see but this movie sort of explores sensuality by way of like hiding it almost like purposefully and intentionally hiding it but hiding it in plain sight which is pretty cool to me so there's this scene where the main character goes to Lady Chablis and he asks her for something. He basically is asking her for a favor. And Lady Chablis takes it as an opportunity to get something that she wants. Um, which is, it's so funny what she asks for. She basically wants the cat main character's name is John. She wants him to take her to the Black Cotillion. And the scene that unfolds is like it's super funny and it's super cute and humorous. And Lady Chablis shows up in like this shimmering blue ball gown that is so not cotillion attire. And no one, no one there ever has a moment of like, that's a man. It's just more so like this is a odd, <laughs> this is an odd person who's around us. And Chablis is blending in, and it's John. John is, like, really, really nervous. John is, you know, John is nervous. He, he like, mm-hmm. But there's never, like, a, he never, like, mistreats Chablis. He never, like, treats her rudely, even though he's uncomfortable. And it's, like, a really cute dynamic that is existing. And one of the things that I found that I was able to pick up as somebody who lives as I do, I was able to resonate with the energy of understanding Chablis' desire to, like, take advantage of this opportunity to be taken out and taken out by a man and taken out by a man that she was attracted to, to be taken out by a man who was kind to her, who showed her respect. They have this scene where he buys her flowers. And it's like, the way they set the movie up is like, oh, like he bought her flowers because he's trying to get her to do something. But as you steadily watch the movie, you could interpret it. I interpreted it anyway, for sure, as like, there are layers of like, John was acting of like an interest. Like, you could tell, like, in ways, like, he was interested in Chevy. That's why he kept putting himself in front of her. Um, and then there's a part where Lady Chablis says, they think they're using a doll, but the doll is using them. And I really like that part because Lady Chablis is a character who manifests in a way of like, she's very much like, I'm getting, I'm going to get mine. <laughs> I, I'm going to help out and like, I'm going to be participatory in these things in this narrative but she's very far from like a character that's just like there to drive the plot like Lady Chablis is acting 
on her own accord and is like, I'm here and I'm in this story, but you could best believe, like, I'm going to have my moment. Whether it's me taking advantage of the courtroom and getting the attention I want or me taking advantage of the fact that you want me to come and be involved in this investigation, you're going to take me out to this ball. Because I might not have a chance to go to it no more. You know, and Lady, Lady Shepley really takes a, a lot. She takes control. And it's very attractive. It's very powerful in the sense of a black, brown-skinned trans woman in the 90s, in the South, walking the earth in a way that's very much like, baby, I'm normal. Even if you think I'm not normal, like, I'm normal and I'm fine. And demanding that she be treated as such. And I think that that's something that we can resonate with. Whether you're trans or not, just the energy of understanding that whatever you are, you probably are normal. Even if your normal is, it has context and circumstances. But, and like going even further, what is normal? What is normal? And then there's this dynamic. I won't say too much because I don't want to spoil it. Pay attention from the very beginning of the movie. Pay attention to the bulldog. Pay attention to bulldogs. Okay? Pay attention to the bulldogs. And in that, you might have to do like another round. Like you probably might have to watch the movie twice to really, really get that, what I'm saying. of Like pay attention to the bulldogs and the answer key that that is. Then there's a part that I really resonated with where that root worker woman, these characters through her have evolved to a certain degree with spirits and with the dead and with different things. And there's this moment where she tells them, don't commune with the dead too long or you forget to live. And I really resonated with that because as a spiritualist, as somebody who is of Bobancha, minorities, New Orleans, Delta space, Delta axis, we are a veil space and we are very connected to the afterlife. And we are very connected to the underliving. And part of the journey of living in this place as a black person, an indigenous person, as a person of motherland descent is Being able to have boundaries with the dead. Being able to have boundaries with the dead in a sense of ghosts and spirits, but also the metaphorical energy of that which is not alive, but metaphysical. And I speak this as a hint to pay attention to the digital. Okay. Um... And then further, coming back to Lady Shepley and John, there's this part where the lady tells him, I love you, boy, but I ain't the only one. But you know that, though, don't you? And it acknowledges, like, the energy that has been existing between Lady Shepley and John. But like I'm telling y'all now that <clears throat> when you look at the movie, the energy between them and the love between them is so not like what one might understand is like a romantic relationship. It's quite progressive in the sense of I resonate with it for things that I'm coming into and being able to understand about myself now, even though it came out back then. And so, yeah, that's, that's my little mini review of um, that's my little mini review of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil and I think I'll transition a little bit maybe still kind of on the topic of the film but shifting a little bit I would like to speak on the energy of gender in the south as it pertains to being a, like a black film, black trans film, black 
non-binary person, whatever you identify, and how in the South, there's a certain energy that comes with it that is like, I can't speak for everybody, but I can say that I resonate a lot more with a character like Lady Chablis than I necessarily do with a character like Electra Abundance. Even though, don't get it twisted, I, I love Electra Abundance. I think of Electra Abundance as a fire character and I respect her character and I respect everything that she represents. I respect the spectrum of transness that Electra Abundance represents, but I know that for myself, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily align with that identity of like what a strong trans person is, what a powerful trans person is. I kind of more so align with Lady Chablis, cause Lady Chablis, she's she's very subtle. She's very subtle. She's very she's very soft, but she's very powerful. She feisty, but she's very soft. And I, I find that black transness in the South is a whole lot of that teeter-totter between softness and ferocity and just moving in ways that's like, I'm from New Orleans, I'm from Bobancha, so it's not like a New York. It's not like a Chicago. It's not like a big city. It's a it's a swamp. And it's slow. And there's a whole lot of nature. And there's a whole lot of natural. And there's a whole lot of spiritual phenomena. And that for me, when I think about gender, there's a lot of things that shape my gender. That I don't see in a lot of things that are like the categories of it. There are a lot of things that shape my gender outside of male and female, outside of masculinity and femininity. There's a lot of things that make me even go so far as to say gender is not so important to me as like addressing niche, niche function and identity within ecosystem, identity within what is natural, identity within I'm not so much concerned with how people see me. I'm not so much concerned with whether people believe in what I say I am versus what I say I'm not. You know, like, I'll tell somebody, like, these are my pronouns, these are my things, and they can respect it if they want. It's greatly appreciated, but if they don't really respect it, or if they look at me and they're like, no, you are a man. You are what I say you are. It's just kind of like, okay, like, I guess to each is only your perception is your perception, but I'm not subject to your perception. Like, you know, it's that ability to be like, I'm not, I'm still not subject to your perception in the sense of you're a human being. Just like I'm a human being. Like we're equal. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much power you have. It doesn't matter what kind of authority you hold. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how many books you've read. It doesn't matter how right you think you are. I am what I say I am. Just like if I project onto you and you tell me that's not what I am. It's not for me to tell you that you're something that you're not because I don't have that authority. So in the same respect, when I speak that I am not man and I am not woman, when I speak that I am what I am, which is, like I said, like my identity is more so shaped by elements and responsibilities and I look a lot into pre-colonial words and concepts and identities you know I'd sooner call myself a eunuch than prescribe to um than prescribe to a lot of modern titles like you don't have many people that'll be like I'm a eunuch because of like, they have, like, a lot of um, negative connotations. But eunuchs in Western Africa, um, they held prominent status in societies. Not like they were, they were worshipped, but it was understood that they were, like, male-bodied. 
that they were a femininity and that they were not usually a danger to women. They were more than often a service to women and of service to men. They were the only male-bodied people who were allowed to live in palaces, which was of women. We see it in the movie The Women King with Viola Davis. The eunuch has a pretty small role, but when they show him, when they show him or them, you feel it. You feel the feistiness. You feel the power. You feel it in the audacity to speak to the queen like, girl. But also in a way being like removed from the drama, being present in things, but not necessarily so attached to it. There's a lot of power, guys. There's a lot of power that come from just looking into senses of standards and senses of work and senses of identity that are more rooted in just what you know you are. You know, because I watched a video, I was on YouTube and they had a video of like this man with a megaphone in his hand and just singling out this um, this gay person, this young gay person and trying to embarrass them and speak on them and project on them and a whole lot of people in the comments that was just saying, I'm like, yeah, you're right. You're so right. This is it's true. It's true. Da, 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 da. And it's just always funny to me because I'm like, you out here spinning your day with a megaphone, screaming out what somebody is and what they not and somebody wrong and what they not. And it's just like, hate don't stop a bag. Hate don't stop a bag. Judgment don't stop a bag. It's certain things. At least I'm speaking from my spirituality. I remind y'all to the start of the video that anything I say is rooted in my reality. If it's not agreed upon, that's cool. But I'm speaking from what I understand. I understand life is being reflective of God is in charge of me. God is my station. God is my standard. God is my checkpoint and there's a lot of ways that God supports me when I walk in my truth he support he supports me divinely every time I go through a phase and I step more in my truth so I remind anybody who's watching this that the whole world can look at you and be like you're not what you say you are or you need to prove this. A lot I think a lot of people, I think a lot of human beings have this have this like almost like a misplaced sense of entitlement to like things being proven to them. Because m- many people live in a spectrum of proving things. But what happens when a whole lot of people just be like, "Girl, I don't have nothing to prove to you." You're not God. I don't have nothing to prove to you, my love. I don't have I don't have to prove that I'm good. I don't have to prove that I'm bad. I don't have to prove that I'm worthy. I don't have to prove any of these things to you because you're not in charge like that, my love. You're a human being. You're a human being and me and you are right here. We're here and here. You're not here and I'm not here. We're both right here. <laughs> so it don't matter who you a king, a celebrity, an idol, whatever. We all right here. And nobody has the power to tell you or dictate what you have to be. They could sit and fuss about it till they blue. Maybe they might even get violent. They might try to compromise your physical body. That is a real threat. Don't get it twisted of what I'm saying to mean that I'm saying that you're invincible when you stand in your faith and you stand your ground in who you are. But what I am saying is that can't nobody make your spirit what you don't want it to be. Which shifts us into speaking a little bit about my fictional work, which is titled Sovereignty of the Spirit. It's like one of my, not like, it is one of my latest episodes that is on my podcast um a good episode to go and tap into is 
I kind of been coursing through ever since I like made official announcement that I published it. I'm taking it slow because Russian attention don't really make sense to me. Not anymore, anyway. But taking it slow and coursing through the episode, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna circle back to that point. But a good episode to go look is um, listen to is called White Moon's Last Stand. That's a good one. Um, it's a lot of emotion in that one and it was very spiritual for me to write I mean the whole episode was very spiritual for me to write like there's certain episodes that sometimes I'll just go and like play and I'll be like Ooh. you know like mm. <laughs> I channel that um, I'll probably plug in I'll probably plug in the links under this live but circling back to thing about not seeking attention I think a powerful thing about Lady Chablis character is how she is so attractive she's so attractive but she be minding her business she got her little stage performance at night you know and this is in the 90s so she don't have like social media she don't have she don't have certain things like she don't have everything to promote herself like how we kind of do now and I reflect on how I think it's a very natural and human thing to want attention I think it's a very natural and human thing to rely on attention and I think that for some people it is part of destiny to live in the realm of attention for the light and the dark of it and I honor them and I respect them a lot I respect anybody who's strong enough to stand in the light like that but some of us And when I say some of us, I definitely mean myself. The light can be really intense. And so, I do my best to function in a way of moderating very carefully and intentionally the way I bring attention upon myself. As an artist, as a creative, but also as as an environmentalist, as a spiritualist. Living in a balance of like, I was given a voice and I was given a mouth. I was given a body and stuff. I was given a I was given tools to communicate. But I also know I ain't trying to rush cataclysm in my life. I'm not trying to rush climax. I wanna move slow. I'm stepping into that, being able to move like the river and honey and all of them things, being able to really be sensual and soft. By the strength of being able to focus on minimalism. Um, I find that when we are so focused and potentially distracted by the frequencies of what is enough for us is what is like too much a lot of times. Like, it's not enough for me until it's actually too much. I don't want to be like that. Um, I don't want to really be like that. I want to kind of function in a space of... I want to engage just enough. You know, like Goldilocks in the three beds. Which I want it just right. I don't want too much. I don't want too little. I want things to be just right. And that takes a lot of focus. And it takes a lot of deliberation. And it takes a lot of spiritual and physical mathematics it takes a lot of time it takes a lot of time I reflect on something as simple as being able to sit here on this video with y'all wearing this wig with these glasses on and my hoops and being able to look like this and sit like this and be in a space of silence and everything 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 I have around me right now from the smallest thing to the biggest thing, everything I have for me right now has come from a lot of work. And it's not even to say that everything I have right now is like guaranteed just because I did a lot of work. It's not even guaranteed still, even after all the work I've done just to experience it. And when I say a lot of work, I mean a lot of work like a whole sun cycle. 12 years that still ain't all the way up yet but when I was 
12 years old, no, 13, going on 14, 2012, November 16th or November 17th, might have been November 17th, I tried to take myself out of this world. I tried to take myself out of this world. And from that moment on, it was kind of just like, I think that parts, I think it was a steady, I communicated with God, like, I don't want to be here no more. I don't want to exist like this. And I tried to kill myself, and it was like, ah, oh, it didn't work. I'm still here. And then years of depression and battling and all kind of things. But now, as I sit, I realize in a way, kind of, it was like crossing a portal in a sense of I cried out for help. And God didn't necessarily give me everything at once. But over time, I was able to do work that got me to a space now where I don't want to kill myself. I don't want to kill myself. I might have my moments sometimes where I'll be like, girl, what am I doing here? Like, what am I doing here? Like, how long I got to be here? But to really go and really off myself, I don't be so eager for that. Because I know that out of everything that's guaranteed, like out of everything that made me not be guaranteed, passage is guaranteed, change is guaranteed. So I don't got to hurt myself. And I find that the more I fight to survive, the more I align with my spiritual self. So that when the moment does come where I pass away, um, I know that I will have done the work in the living life to be what I want to be in the afterlife. It's not going to be like, oh, I just, I'm just complacent forever and then I die and then, oh, everything's going to be heaven and sunshine and rainbows. My spirituality doesn't feel like that. My spirituality doesn't resonate with like the idea of just like, and this is not a bash on anything. This is just, I'm speaking from me. I don't feel aligned to the degree of spirituality being just about like do whatever you want and just pray like with the words. I feel like prayer is action. Prayer is exercise. Exercise and exorcise is an exercising some demons out you. Like I feel like my relationship with God, my personal relationship with God does not look like sitting and waiting for help. My relationship with God looks like God helped me to fight because my ego is a warrior. My ego is a warrior and she is large and she's in charge. And she is very likely at all times to choose death over this arm. But that is not to say that she is actively calling on death. Um, yeah. Thank you guys for coming to my live. Y'all want to see my fan? This my fan. So, all my fans, they all named Parali, which is the Yoruba word for pearl. This is the most current Parali. She was manifested around St. Joseph night in March. Let's do some exercises for her. Just got to go for this. Y'all can have long morning, so every time I want to make a video, here
Asia and Vietnam and China and Japan and the Arctic, I also see a lot of Bobacha. I see a lot of Bobacha in there. And I give homage to that work of art to help me to become who I am today. If I am on a frequency, if I am on a label, if I am on something to fit into, Sorry <laughs> to the podcast people. I was away from the iPad for a little bit. I hope they could hear me. It's still recorded too. But okay. These are some designs from my latest from um, the Sovereign Head of Spirit episode. This is one of my characters. Her name is Little Moon. And she's based off an ancestor, a true ancestor. I want to make stickers soon. Check out the Patreon for more. And I hope you have a super sweet day. Bye, guys. Oh, love, oh, love.
God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day, all of the way. He will take care of you. Girl, I forgot I was still recording podcast people. I'm sorry. I'm just up in here. Let me end this. Oh my god. Okay, bye.